It's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter's asleeping. Judas is betraying. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Pilate's struggling. The council is conspiring. The crowd is vilifying. They don't even know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd. Mary is crying. Peter is denying. But they don't know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The Romans beat my Jesus. They robe him in scarlet. They crown him with thorns. But they don't know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday, see Jesus walking to Calvary, his blood dripping, his body stumbling, and his spirit's burden. But you see, it's only Friday, Sunday's coming. It's Friday, the world's winning, people are sinning, evil's grinning. It's Friday, the soldiers nail my Savior's hand to the cross. They nail my Savior's feet to the cross. They raise him up next to criminals. It's Friday. But let me tell you something. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to their king. And the Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved. But they don't know. It's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. He's hanging on the cross, forsaken by his father, left alone dying. Can nobody save him? Oh, it's Friday. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday, the earth trembles, the sky grows dark, my king yields his spirit. It's Friday, hope is lost, death has won, sin has conquered, and Satan's just a laughing. It's Friday, Jesus is buried, a soldier stands guard, and a rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday, it's only Friday, Sunday is coming. Those are the words of the late S.M. Lockridge. Well, brothers and sisters, today is Sunday, so let me tell you the rest of that story. At early dawn, the woman came to the tomb with spices prepared, searching, but what they found was utterly shocking. It's Sunday. The stone that covered the tomb was rolled away. They went in looking, but Jesus' body they sought was missing, an empty tomb perplexing. It's Sunday. Behold, two angels dazzling, frightened. The woman bowed their heads, faces to the ground, trembling. The angels responded, why do you seek him among the dead? He is living. He is not here. He's arisen. It's Sunday. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified. But on the third day, he will rise again. That's what he said, remembering it's Sunday. Returning from the tomb, the woman to the eleven and to the rest, sharing the apostles, unbelieving, Peter arose, running into the tomb, stooping, looking, grave clothes folded, no sign of Jesus, marveling, it's Sunday. Jesus appeared among them, saying, peace be with you, fear not, Thomas, stop doubting, see my hands, see my feet, touch my side, no, you ain't dreaming, it's Sunday. Broiled fish eating, prophecies of old and promises, fulfilling opening minds with understanding it was written from the beginning. They were witnesses of his arising. It's Sunday. Lifted hands receive his blessing. Christ ascending our great commissioning. Holy Spirit coming for our empowering. May we never stop proclaiming he is risen. He is risen until all nations and tongues are joining in worshiping. 
So even on Fridays or other dark days, when we are in deep suffering, Paul's words ever consoling, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O where, O death, is your stinging? Visions of saints in endless singing, congregations never breaking, hope of his certain returning. In all your Fridays, press on remembering in him abiding Sunday after Sunday. He'll keep us persevering. It's Sunday. And the sun's day is quickly approaching. Faith will turn to sight on the great day of his exalting. It's Sunday. Christ has won. Satan is chained. Sin's power conquered. Death is defeated. Glory to God in the highest. Christ Jesus, our God, our King, risen and reigning. It's a new day. It's his day. It's Sunday. Amen? We're continuing our study through 1 Peter in our series, Hope in a Hostile World. And in our passage in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, Peter exhorts elect exiles what it means to live in light of Jesus' victory. As we've been studying from this letter, the Apostle Paul exhorts elect exiles, chosen pilgrims of God, scattered all across Asia Minor in his day, preparing their minds for action. And being sober-minded to set their hope fully on the salvation that would be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter wanted to remind them that though they will face innumerable challenges, yes, you will face incalculable challenges and obstacles for their faith in this life. Because they know Jesus Christ who has died, resurrected, and ascended into heaven, proclaiming victory over all rulers and authorities and spiritual forces of the unseen realm, Because he sits at the right hand of God as sovereign king over all with angels and authorities and powers all subjected to him. Christians can hope with certain confidence. They can submit to all human authorities as the scripture commands. They can bless others even while being reviled. They can love life and see good days even in the midst of affliction. That was our passage from last week, right? Especially 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 18 through 22. Well, this afternoon in our passage, Peter teaches Christians how to live our lives in light of what Christ has done by his death, his resurrection, and ascension in view of Christ's victory and exaltation in the face of persecution and suffering. So from our passage, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, I want to share with you three ways Christians are good stewards of his victorious life. Here's the outline so you can follow. Point number one. Live for the will of God, verses 1 through 3. Live for the will of God, verses 1 through 3. Point number 2. Live in resurrection hope, verses 4 through 6. Live in resurrection hope. And point number 3. Live to glorify God to the end. Live to glorify God to the end, verses 7 through 11. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray if there is anyone here this afternoon who needs a fresh reminder why you should continue to persevere in faith, that this word will be an empowering encouragement to you. If you are visiting us today and do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, thank you so much for being here. I pray these words will point you to Jesus who died for your sins and offers new life and eternal life to you if you would repent of your sins and trust him as Lord today. The fact is Christians have been celebrating Resurrection Sunday Every Sunday for over 2,000 years, ever since Jesus got up from the grave, there is no other reasons why Christians should be still gathering if Jesus is still dead. 
his short 33 years of life and three years of public ministry would have died with him. There's no way a crucified criminal would have turned the world upside down if he is still in the grave. Friends, I want to remind you, we are here today and Christians are gathered all around the world today because Jesus is who he says he is. He is the son of God, the promised Messiah, the risen king. He is alive and he is coming again. Hallelujah. You guys are awfully quiet this morning. Amen? So we encourage you to come again. Join us next Sunday. Consider how you can grow and serve with us. Don't do it alone. So without further ado, let's look to our text. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. It will be found on page 1016 of the Blue Bibles around you. I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open throughout the entire duration of the message and follow along as I read and preach. If you're new to the Bible, the large numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. So 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 1 through 11. By the way, if you do not have a Bible to read at home, please take one of those blue Bibles with you as a gift from us to help you grow in studying God's word at home. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 says this. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Everybody said, Amen. How should Christians be good stewards of Jesus' victory? Point number one, live for the will of God, verses one through three. Look with me. To verse 1 again, it says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has seized from sin. The first observation we can make from verse 1 is the phrase, therefore. And as I always say, every time you see the word, therefore, you need to ask yourself what the word, therefore, is there for. Well, I don't need to belabor this point because my entire intro summarized the previous passage from last Sunday, which climaxes in verses 18 through 22. If you have not yet, please go home and read it over tonight if you have not done so. And it emphasizes, those verses emphasizes Jesus' victory by his death on the cross, through his resurrection from the dead, and in his ascension to the heavenly throne as the King of kings and Lord of this universe. Peter says, in light of Christ's victory, he has already won. In light of that, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Peter was saying Christ's suffering was the 
pathway to victory and to glory. So followers of Christ, that's you, if you profess to be a follower of Christ, you should also arm yourselves for suffering in order to experience the power, the power of Christ's victory in your lives. In other words, if you want to know the life-giving, mind-transforming, making Satan-cowering, sin-wrecking, soul-saving strength of Christ's victory in you, he says, strap on, arm up for war. Peter unashamedly proclaims followers of Jesus, imitate Jesus. Peter says, go head on into suffering. Go all in on suffering. He says, welcome suffering. He says, rejoice in suffering because knowing Christ's victory means you are set apart. You are different than the world and you will have to endure suffering. Now, this isn't the first time Peter used militaristic language to present the reality of our fight against sin and the flesh and the temptations pressing in on us in this world. He had said in 1 Peter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He's reminding us again, the fight against the passions of our flesh The fight against the enemies of our soul is portrayed to us to be none other than an all-out war. There's no other way to describe it, you see. There's no way to minimize it or ignore it. The Christian life is war. In his book, When I Don't Desire God, How to Fight for Joy, Pastor John Piper reminds us, and I quote, Christianity is not a settle in and live at peace with this world the way it is kind of religion. When Jesus said the truth will set you free, he didn't mean without a battle. He meant that truth would win the war of of the liberation in your soul. He continues, Christianity is war. It is a declaration of an all-out combat against our own sinful impulses. To become a Christian is to wake up to the reality that our soul, the external joy of our soul, is at stake. Therefore, Christianity is mortal combat for true and lasting joy. This is why the scripture says in Romans 13, 12, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. That's why it says in Ephesians 6, 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's why 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of love and faith and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And 2 Timothy 2, 4 which says no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Can I say it again? The Christian life is war. Examine your heart this morning. Examine your soul this morning. The Christian life is war. But I want you to be absolutely certain what kind of war you are engaging in, what kinds of suffering you are to embrace because there is such a thing as fighting the wrong fight. Uh, You know it well when you get into little fights with your family members, brothers and sisters, and it's totally not worth it. The Bible is teaching us, Peter is instructing us what kind of fight this fight is. Let me tell you, myriads have attempted and horrifically failed because they engaged in a war they were never supposed to. Notice Peter says, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. Peter didn't say, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, you also Suffer in the flesh. He's not saying that. Just follow me. I get, I'll get to what Peter means when he said, whoever suffered in the flesh in a bit. 
But listen up. Peter was not saying you also suffer as Christ did on the cross. He's not saying you also die on the cross as Jesus did. Just listen. The calling of Christianity isn't a calling to martyrdom. Certainly, many followers of Jesus following the apostles, including Peter himself, by the thousands, by the ten thousands, have sacrificed their lives for their faith and for the advancement of the gospel. In fact, Jesus himself says in Matthew 16, verses 24 through 25, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever would lose his life will save it. But understand this. The fight that we are called to is not one merely in the flesh. What I'm saying is countless religious zealots all around the world and throughout history have attempted and tried to win favor with God through works righteousness, to obtain righteousness, to merit eternal life, to win a pass to heaven, attempting to live good lives by doing good things. But Christianity is not a fight of doing. Christianity is not a fight of works only. Christianity is not legalism. It's not moralism. It's not about being a good person only. Rather, Christianity is a fight of faith. As according to 1 Timothy 6.12, which says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. Christianity is a fight of standing firm as according to Ephesians 6.12, which says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil of the day. Having done all to stand firm, stand firm. Christianity is a fight of faith. We fight with divine power, not with power of our flesh, as it says in 2 Corinthians 10, 4. 2 Corinthians 10, 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now follow me. I'll explain. Remember, victory has already been won by Jesus. We know the end game. Hello, Jesus conquered death. That's why millions across the world, generation after generation, are celebrating the resurrected Jesus today and every Sunday. Jesus puts Satan on a leash. Sin is ultimately powerless. So the fight is not a matter of who wins. Jesus won. What you are trying to figure out is if you are on the winning team or not. The fight is within you. The fight is within you. The scripture repeatedly confirms he provides the weapons of warfare. The weapons of this world just cannot compare. So you know, as true Christians, we have sufficient grace and power to withstand. We know the end game if you're a true Christian. But again, the fight is the fight of faith within you. Will you remain standing in the end? Jesus had said, the one who stands firm to the end the one who endures to the end will be saved. So is that you? Will that be you? The final day will disclose the truth of who are his and who are not. So until that day, the evidence of God's salvation is in you. It's whether you are fighting this fight of faith or not. And that's the whole purpose of this passage. Peter is exhorting Christians, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, Peter is repeating what he has already said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action 
And being sober-minded, being alert, and being self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, the fight of faith starts in the mind. Colossians 3, verses 2 through 4 says, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So, do you often find yourself meddling with the things of the earth and totally, completely, entirely on the things of the earth? Peter, Paul, the Bible is reminding us, set your mind on the things above. Look to Christ. Look to his word. Lean on this church body and persevere to the end. This is why Peter says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, many people have different opinions about what this verse means, but let me just clarify it for you as simply as I can. The whoever who has suffered in the flesh is simply referring to true Christians. Now, if you look at your Bible, it will be much more helpful. Okay? Whoever who has suffered in the flesh is referring to true Christians. Those who have been born again, those who have died with Christ in his suffering and risen with Christ in the newness of life, those who have publicly professed their confession of faith by baptism, those who have made themselves accountable to a local church by biblical church membership, as Hebrews 10, 25 says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. As Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. They are the ones Peter is speaking about who has ceased from sin. It's consistent with Paul's reasoning in Romans 6, verses 1 through 4, which says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So again, Christians are those who have died to sin and have been raised, made alive to new life in Christ. Amen? Well, maybe you are thinking, I'm a Christian. Why is it that I still struggle so hard with sin? Why is it that I still struggle so hard with sin? Now, as I have said before, the point is this. Are you struggling? Are you fighting? Are you arming yourself? That is the point of the text. The truth is, as long as we live in this body, on this side of the earth, we will always struggle with sin. That's why the reformer Martin Luther said all of the Christian life is repentance. So if you are a true Christian, are you regularly repenting? Are you preparing? Are you arming? Are you fighting? Because I can guarantee you, those who are dead in their sins are not fighting sins. They are laxed in their minds. They don't take up the armor. They don't resist sin. In fact, they enjoy sin. Uh, in fact, they feel entitled to it. They are licensed to it. They indulge in it, not knowing they are actually enslaved by it. Sin is not doing whatever you want. Sin is not freedom. Sin is stupid. Sin is slavery, according to Scripture. 
You see, that's why those who are arming themselves in the strength of Christ's victory, those who have suffered in the flesh, those who have ceased from sin, from living for sin and in sin, verse 2 says, live for the rest of their time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Christians are ones who live for the will of God and not for their human passions. They are ones who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Amen? I love Peter's tone in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices. We're doing what the Gentiles do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Peter is simply saying, man, enough. Enough of that stuff. That's enough. You aren't missing anything doing what the Gentiles or unbelievers do. It doesn't satisfy. Can I get an amen? It doesn't satisfy. Peter specifies sins that first century unbelievers frequently engaged in. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. (laughs) Is he describing 21st century? Because that's what it sounds like. Much hasn't changed, has it? What Peter's saying is, you won't look back in your life and wish later on, man, I wish I engaged in more sensual relationships. Boy, I wish I could have spent more days as a drunkard. Man, I really wish I could have been more unfaithful in my relationships. Man, I really regret not going to more drinking parties. Most people actually regret that the morning after. The list goes on. Peter says, the time that is passed in lawless idolatry, worshiping yourself, worshiping the world, Worshiping the things of this world, it's done. It's sufficient. Enough. It makes sense for the people of this world who have no purpose in life, no meaning. For people who are empty inside, who are dead inside, as the Bible describes, they think that this world is the only life they have to live for. So they say, who cares? Drink, be married, for tomorrow we die. YOLO. It's a hopeless and terrifying state to be in. Christians, on the other hand, have been made alive because Jesus is alive. And having been born again to a living hope, we know now is a time to live. Now, not tomorrow, is a time to live for the will of God, to obey God, to honor God, to serve God in all things. It's living in light of Christ's victory. That's being good stewards of Christ's suffering, living now as you are supposed to live. He is alive. Let's live. Amen? So brothers and sisters, some application for you. How are you doing living for the will of God? How are you doing arming your mind? How are you doing right now as you are listening to God's word? How are you doing reading scripture daily to remind yourself of the truth that you are his, that you have a purpose in this life? How are you persevering in the truth that suffering is temporary, that suffering is growing your faith in him in it? that you will experience the power of his victorious life working through you when you wholly depend on him through afflictions and suffering. Good stewards of Christ live for the will of God, but there's more to be said. Second way, Christians can be good stewards of Christ's victory. Point number two, live in resurrection hope. Live in resurrection hope, verses four through six. Look with me to verses four and five. It says this, but with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give an account who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Just as it was normal and accepted and championed in the first century, 
Sin has found no enemies on this side of the earth. Sin has found no enemies on this side of the earth. Sinners, in fact, find a home here on earth. That's why verse 4 says, the people of this world are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. The people of this world are so lost in sin. They are so deep in depravity. They are so succumbed in their slavery. They don't even realize it's straight from the pits of hell. They don't understand their own demise. What? You don't watch porn? What? You don't fornicate? You're a prude. You're, a, you're so uptight. You're a loser. What? You don't support abortion? You believe in traditional marriage? You support transgenderism? You're a complementarian? You're a Christian? You're backward. You're judgmental. You're hateful. You're pathetic. But Christians know, as verse 5 says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter has already reminded elect exiles in 1 Peter 1.17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter is saying, rather than fearing those who mock and malign you for your faith, fear the father who will judge us all. Fear the righteous judge who will judge justly. Brothers and sisters, friends, family, and visitors, how does the idea that you will one day be judged for every deed you have done make you feel? How do you feel about that? That you will be judged for every deed that you have done. Scripture says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It says you are dead in your trespasses and sins. It also says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to their own way. There is no one righteous, not even one. Well, you may say or think, I don't believe in God. I, I, I don't care. Okay, then you will get what you'll get. But do you really want to leave it to chance? 50-50. What do you want to do? Either thousands of years of history and millions upon millions of Christians all around the world who testify of Jesus' resurrection whose book, the Bible, is the number one bestseller of all time, at least by double every single year, is right? Or you? What will you do? What is your choice? Maybe you're thinking, can God be really so cruel, so unfair, so mean to send me to hell and judge me eternally? I share this illustration often, but I haven't come up with a new one. So if somebody does, please tell me. But here's an illustration. If I kill someone and I get arrested, my punishment isn't going to jail. My punishment will be determined when I stand before a judge. And if the judge recognizes me and says, hey, Pastor James, and he says, what are you doing here? Uh, you're normally a really great guy, but what? You killed somebody? Okay, okay, I get it. You know, you had a bad day. I'll let you go. You're free. Is that a good judge or a bad judge? Bad judge, okay? The Bible says God is a good judge. He is a righteous judge, and he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Maybe some of you are still thinking, well, is my sin so bad that I get sent to eternity in hell for a bit of drunkenness, for a bit of watching inappropriate TV, an eternity in hell? That seems a little bit harsh. Again, here's an illustration that I like to repeat often. If I were to push an old man in the street, you'd call me a jerk. If I were to kick a baby... They'd throw me in jail as a crazy person. 
If I punch a president in the face, they would throw me in federal prison as a terrorist. But if I sin against a holy God, the creator of the universe, repeatedly, daily denying him, repeatedly, daily going against his word, our just punishment is rightly eternity in hell. A lifetime of my life is not enough to compensate for what I have done to God. The punishment of my sin increases with whom I sin against. That's why Romans 1.20 says it simply, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. People, you and I, are without excuse before a holy and righteous God. We rightly deserve judgment for our sin. In fact, we have already been indicted. There's no question about it. I just read you all those verses. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if you are curious, all of us are guilty. The charge has been already given. We are guilty. So if you're not a Christian here, what will you do? What can you do? Every other religion of this world attempted to provide the answer. And it boils down to two things. Do better. Try harder. Do better. Try harder. Secularism and atheism simply says, pay no mind. You are on your own. You are your own God. So let me ask you, if that is you, how is that going for you? How is that going for you being your own God? Are you truly the master of your own life? Are you truly the master of your own life? Now, if you come to a place this afternoon... Wondering, truly wondering, what in the world am I going to do? I am guilty as charged. What in the world am I going to do? Good news for you. It's a good day to be here at church this afternoon. You joined us on a very good Sunday because Christianity has the only truly good news for sinners like you and me, for those who know whose inevitable end is death and judgment and hell for all eternity. That's verse 6. Look at verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. Hallelujah. The truth, there is no other way out of eternal death sentence that we rightly deserve. There is no peace with God by our own efforts. He is far too holy. He is far too righteous for any of us to work our way up to God. It's an impossibility. But this is why God sent his son, that he might provide a way for us. Again, verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. The reason why the gospel was preached even to us who are dying, even though we will physically die for our sins when our time on earth expires, by God, by his mercy, by his grace, we who are the chosen of God, the elect of God, will live again in the spirit the way Jesus did. Hallelujah. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the best news you will ever hear. That the one who is infinitely holy, eternally worthy, majestically glorious in himself, created you and me in love for us to know his glory. But man, having been tempted by Satan, distrusted and disobeyed God's word, wanting to be our own gods. As a result, man was separated from God, completely helpless and incapable of saving himself from the vain and dissatisfying power and curse of sin. 
This is the picture and reality of every single fallen human on earth since Genesis chapter 3. Simply, there is no way out of this bondage of sin, death, and eternal torment. Because we, we ourselves have subjected ourselves to the lordship of Satan and his schemes when we rejected God in our rebellion. But God, but God in his mercy had a plan from the very beginning to redeem man from our miserable state and our eternal fate, to forgive man for their sins. How? By sending his own son, Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we should have died, to be our substitute on the cross, to pay the debt of our sin we would have paid in eternal hell. Jesus Christ, on that Friday, it is finished. Tetelestai, perfect, passive, indicative, once and for all. Hallelujah. On Friday, Satan thought he won. On Friday, there seemed to be no way. On Friday, there was no hope. There was only darkness and sadness. But on Sunday, hallelujah, on Sunday, Jesus Christ rose again from death, conquering sin, Satan, and death forever. Sins of the past, sins of the present and future, one sin for all. And on Sunday, Jesus declared, take courage. I have overcome the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So therefore, whosoever would repent, whosoever, anyone who would repent and believe in him will not die and go to hell, but participate in his resurrection and live the new life here on earth and eternal life forevermore. Friend, if you are here and you are not a Christian, can I tell you something so certain? That I and a hundred other people sitting here in this room are willing to bet our lives on it. Hear it. You are not here by mistake. What I mean by here is not just here today in this building, but here living this life. You were not born without a purpose. And if you are hearing my words right now, hearing these words, and the Spirit of God is moving in your heart, Don't delay anymore. Don't hesitate further. There is no other way. No one else is coming for you. Jesus came for you. He died for you. He made a way for you. He made a way for you. A way to peace with God. A way to peace with yourself. A way to peace with others. Though you may die in the flesh, as people all will do, that you might live in the Spirit as He did. If that is you, repent of your sins this moment. That means turn from continuing in sin or continuing in your doubts. Believe Jesus died and rose and ascended to heaven for you, reigning as King. Trust in Him with your whole life for your past, for your present for your tomorrow, forevermore. If you want to know more about how you can follow Jesus, I'll be happy to talk to you and pray with you at the close of service. I'll be standing at the back door, Pastor Jeremy at the outside door, John, our service leader, at this door, or talk to somebody smiling next to you. That's the whole reason why we are here, to hear God's word and to share God's word. Please give us the joy and privilege how we can help one another follow Christ. Brothers and sisters of NCBC, aren't you glad? Aren't you so glad you get to live with resurrection hope? That death is not the end of you? 
The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? No one, nothing. Bring it on. How does knowing the end change the way you live now? Are you pouring your life into eternal things? Are you posturing yourself into eternal investments? Are you building your home that will last into all eternity? In a few moments, you'll hear the testimonies of John and Janice, whose lives were once deep in darkness and denial of God's truth. Yet they heard the good news of Jesus, that Jesus is alive, and that changed everything for them. Someone told them of resurrection hope, and I want to challenge you, brothers and sisters in Christ, may we proclaim it faithfully, intentionally, and boldly, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for the reason for the hope that is in us. Amen? Point number two, being a good steward of Jesus' victory means living with resurrection hope. Third and finally, a much shorter point, how can Christians be good stewards of resurrection hope and power? Point number three, live to glorify God to the end, verses 7 through 11. Look with me to verse 7 again. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. This is another occasion Peter has brought doing something for the sake of our prayers. You see, what Peter is doing is Peter is assuming that Christians are a praying people. It's normal. It's regular that Christians pray. Maybe you're wondering, "Uh, I'm a Christian. I don't pray. Examine your heart. Why you don't pray? That's why whatever hinders prayer should be dealt with. I think a couple things are being emphasized as Peter repeats this necessity, this priority of prayer. And I think that's number one, the priority of prayer for Christians. Prayer is not a secondary thing. Prayer is essential. I love the book by J.C. Ryle titled A Call to Prayer. And he says, a habit of prayer is one of the surest marks of a true Christian. A habit of prayer is one of the surest marks of a true Christian. Michael Reeves, in his book, Enjoy Your Prayer Life, Enjoy Your Prayer Life, says, prayerlessness is practical atheism. Your prayer life does reveal who you really are. Robert Murray McShane says, what a man is alone and on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. This is why Martin Luther famously said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Simply, just as if you don't breathe, you die. If you don't pray, your spiritual life withers. As such, Peter reminds us the end of all things is at hand. This is a secret that only Christians have been made known by God. Jesus is coming again. The end is near. His judgment is near. That's certain. Hence, be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. More practically, Peter instructs us how we can live with the end in mind and how to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Isn't isn't God's word such a gift? It's it's teaching us right here. Look at verse 8 through 10. This is what it looks like to live with the end in mind. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. As Peter is including this section, he is repeating, he is reminding us of what he has already spoken of in 1 Peter 1.22. Having purified your souls by your obedience of the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Remember that? And also he had said in 1 Peter 3.18, 
Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And as I shared with you last week, brotherly love being the central mark of the Christian community. They will know who you are by your love for one another. Peter says love covers a multitude of sins. I shared yesterday at Cody and Elaine's wedding from 1 John 4 verses 1 through 20 that love is from God because God is love. Love is not a fleeting, fast, fairy tale love of the world. Call that something else, but that's not love. 1 John 4, 9 says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So what is love? Jesus is the love of God revealed for us. Jesus is the love of God sacrificed for our sins. Jesus is the love of God giving us new life. Jesus is the love of God, our hope and assurance to sustain us until he returns. Hence, Jesus covers a multitude of sins. You see? Loving others like Jesus loves means our bonds are deeper, even more than a regular family blood bond. We are one. That's why Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. As family, we share everything, right? Uh, As family, that's what we do. Open up our homes. We use our gifts to serve one another. And that is a beautiful expression of unity and love. Man, I was so proud of you guys yesterday at Cody and Elaine's wedding. Each of us coming together to work and serve that couple. It was a beautiful sight. Ah, I could say more, but moving on. Verse 11 says, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Peter is exhorting Christians to use our words to speak of God's good news. He's saying, speak like words matter. The next phrase says, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Peter is saying, Christians, don't grow weary in doing good. Serve with the strength that God supplies. And we know whenever God commands anything in Scripture, he always provides the means to do them. Amen? That's why Peter says, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I'm wrapping up. When we live faithful, humble, selfless lives like Christ, he is glorified. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What does living as good stewards in light of Christ's victory mean, even in persecution and suffering? Live for the will of God. Live with resurrection hope. Live for his glory from Sunday to Sunday and Sunday after Sunday until he returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you have called each and every single one of us to respond to the reality that in this world there is no hope apart from you. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have been called as your children to live with the end in mind in light of all that you have done for us in Christ by his death, resurrection, and ascension. Father, if there is anyone here who does not know you, may this be the day, may history record that today is the day they heard the gospel and surrendered to you. 
May this be the day. Father, we love you and we thank you. Continue to sustain us Sunday after Sunday in light of the victorious truth that we know that Jesus has won and conquered. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.